Well, some of you know that uh, this week, Sharon and I made a really quick trip out to California and back. We got up Wednesday morning early, got back Thursday night late. We flew out because uh, Corey's, our daughter Corey's husband's mom died, and they invited me to do the memorial service, which is an incredible privilege. So on the way out to California, I had window seats, which I love. But on the way back, flying over the Sierras and over the Rockies, I had a middle seat. The Sierras and the Rockies, I love. Middle seats, I don't love so much. But I didn't even have the opportunity to get the tiniest bit grumpy because from the moment that I sat down on the plane, I had an amazing three-hour conversation with the woman who was sitting in the seat I would have liked to have been sitting in by the window. <laughs> she was really sharp, deeply reflective, a very honest young woman who was really struggling with her Christian faith. She grew up in a Christian context, but for the past several years, she had been deeply struggling with her Christian parents, her Christian friends, her Christian college, and her Christian church. And again and again, this was the issue that her struggles boiled down to. You believe in something that claims to have the power to transform people's lives, to make them over, to make them new. And yet you live in ways that are not in any way distinctive from the world around you. Your love feels shallow, your faith feels false, your life feels self-serving, and your passion to respond to the needs of the world seems confined to meeting your own needs. How you live, how you relate, fails to give evidence of the very thing that you claim to be. A made new follower of Jesus. Shouldn't your life be less about you? So, if someone that you knew was talking about you, to a stranger like me on an airplane and talking specifically about how your Christian faith finds expression in your life, what would they say about you? One of the things that we believe as followers of Jesus, because it's something that the Bible teaches, is that every single human heart is contested ground. There are two opposing spiritual forces at play. One is the power of good as God seeks to draw us into the riches of relationship with himself and into the joy and vibrancy of new life in Christ and a life lived for him. But the other is the power of evil as the evil one seeks to draw us away from God, to rob us of the good gifts that God has for us, to undermine a life lived for God and to encourage us to live our lives for ourselves instead. Everything about the evil one is defined in opposition to the purposes of God. Devil is a word that means someone who throws something across the path in order to block it. Often it's, it's translated as accuser. Satan is a name that means adversary, opponent, enemy. And the tempter is someone who seeks to veer you away from God's best by convincing you that your deepest desires can really be met in something other than God. 
So God gives, Satan seeks to rob. God loves, the evil one accuses. God invites, the tempter twists. The passage that we are looking at today is one that shows how those two spiritual forces were at work in the life of Jesus at the very moment that he begins his public ministry. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, came to earth to love and to redeem fallen humanity. And as he began to walk to the cross, God sets Jesus apart as his unique son and invites him into a life in his faithful service. And the evil one wants anything but that. So he sets out to veer Jesus off of the path by tempting him. Well, how do you tempt God? How would you try to get Jesus, the Son of God, fully human and fully divine, to veer off of the path of obedience? Fascinatingly, the way that Satan tries to tempt Jesus is with the truth. Even to the point of quoting scripture. But the truth twisted ever so slightly. A version of the truth that leaves just a few important details out so that the truth ends up coming in service of Satan's designs instead of God's ends. The story begins in the last few verses of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, when John baptizes Jesus. Matthew tells us that just as Jesus came up out of the water, at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And then chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And then hopping one verse. The tempter came to him said, and said, if you are the son of God. Now, if you are the Son of God, can actually be translated, as several versions do, since you are the Son of God. And I think that's actually a better translation. This is where Satan seeks to use the truth to tempt Jesus off the path of faithfulness. Satan never disputes Jesus' identity. What he tempts him with is how exactly he will be faithful to his identity as the Son of God. What will being the unique son of God mean? From a biblical perspective, identity is never something that's true just about me. Me in isolation, me independent of any other point of reference. Biblically speaking, my identity can only be understood as something that is true about me in relationship to the God who created me and gave me life. Jesus isn't just the son, he is the son of God. He is defined by his relationship to the Father. But what exactly will that relationship with the Father look like? That's where Satan is at work. Jesus takes on flesh. He walks this earth. What will his relationship with the Father look like during that time of ministry? Now think about this. As the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, God the Son, eternally seated with the Father and the Spirit in the heavenly throne room, he is in a position, rightfully, of incredible power and privilege. And at the same time, as he takes on flesh and comes and walks among us, he does so in response to the Father's call and invitation. 
The father invites the son to lay down his rights and his place of privilege and power and to live his days on earth as a servant rather than as a king. To give his life in service of his father. So the life of the son of God as lived out on earth is to be a life of self-emptying, of life of duty and service. So Jesus, the Prince of Glory, is led by the Spirit out into the desert, and there he is tempted by Satan, the Prince of this world, with the truth, with the truth of the fact that he is, in fact, the exalted Son of God, and that power and privilege are rightly his. That's the temptation that Jesus lays, or that Satan lays before Jesus. Embrace the glory, Jesus, that is rightly yours. Lay aside the burden of duty. Don't let yourself be put out by having to serve the Father who is your equal. Assert your divine power and privilege. Let it be about you. Focus on your needs, your desires, your ambitions, instead of putting the Father first and his kingdom and his glory. You're loved by the Father since he's so pleased with you as he just declared. Let the Father serve the Son instead of the other way around. The first temptation is found in verse 2 of chapter 4 in Matthew's gospel. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he'd become exceedingly hungry. The tempter came to him and he said, well, since you're the son of God, just tell these stones to become bread. Use the power and privilege that is rightly yours to serve yourself and to meet your own needs. That's the temptation to see God as the Great Harvest Bread Company. It shouldn't have to cost us when we serve God, should it? I mean, why should God's son go hungry? Why should you have to do without? Just turn a few rocks into loaves of bread. Jesus resists the temptation by quoting scripture. The first time from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. Yes, I have that power, but my life on earth is about something far more important than my own physical comfort. Loving and serving the father is far more important than any of my physical needs. So Jesus answers, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So how does Jesus respond to this temptation? With scripture, not as a magic talisman, Not as a wand that he waves to try to veer off evil, but as a thoroughly integrated way of seeing reality, of knowing what's true. It is written, he says. What does it tell us that that was how he responded to the evil one all three times he was tempted? By quoting scripture. What does that tell us about scripture? And what does that tell us about being prepared to respond when temptation comes? to the half-truths and the twisted truths and the truths as proof text that were on the lips of the evil one, Jesus responds with the whole truth. The truth of his life and ministry rightly seen from the perspective of the Father. Yes, that is what is true about my eternal identity. I am the Son of God, but the life to which I'm called as the Son of God while here on earth is a life lived in sacrificial service of my Father. And in fact, that life of service will be one in which Jesus often goes hungry, even while he is 
using his power and his privilege to serve and to feed others. Mark chapter 30, or 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat, feeding others while he goes hungry. Mark chapter 6, verse 31. Right before the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, so many people were coming and going that Jesus and the disciples didn't even have a chance to eat. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany and the ministry there, Jesus was hungry. But in John chapter 4, he reflects how thoroughly he has overcome this temptation to focus on his own comfort and his own needs. And he has found joy in a life of duty and service to the Father. John chapter 4, verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish that work. His second temptation starts in verse 5. Then the devil took him to this holy city. And he had him stand on the highest point of the temple. Since you are the son of God, he said, just throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This is the temptation to see God as heavenly bungee cord. The temptation is to reverse things to focus on what God can do for us, to, to put God in a position where he is forced to serve me rather than the other way around. Again, Jesus responds by quoting scripture, this time from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Yes, I am his son, and yes, he has promised me his care and his protection but it is never my place to force God's hand. God's call is for me to serve him while I'm here on earth, not to put him in a place where he has to serve me. The father loves me. He sees me. He knows my needs. I can trust him to meet my needs as he sees fit while I am busy seeking to serve him and others. And in fact, that is exactly what the father does. If you hop down a few lines to the end of this story, I love this. We're told that as soon as this time of testing in the wilderness came to an end, verse 11, then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. The Son of God can trust the love of the Father even as his own focus is on serving the Father rather than on being served by the Father. That leads to the third temptation, which begins in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will just bow down and worship me. This is the temptation to focus on ourselves and what we are entitled to. Setting aside thought of the glory and the honor that our gods do and focusing on the glory and the honor that are our due instead. This is a mock-up of a Time Magazine Man of the Year edition with Jesus looking very cool in sunglasses, surrounded by glory upon glory. This is the temptation to see God as our own personal celebrity agent, advancing our own causes and our own careers and our own reputations. That's a temptation that Jesus puts or the evil one puts before Jesus 
in this third temptation. You know you deserve it. You know you want it. We all know who you are. We all know you actually already have all of this glory. So what are you waiting for? It all belongs to you. Just receive the glory that you're due. So how does Jesus respond to this temptation? The same as with the other two, he refuses. Jesus says to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13 now, he brings us to the heart of this encounter and the heart of this passage. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. If you were to try to put that in your own words, how might you paraphrase that command that comes to us from Scripture? Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship the Lord your God. This word contains the word picture of getting down on your hands and your knees with your face to the ground in front of someone who is in a position of power and authority, someone like a king, as a way of acknowledging their power and authority over you and as a way of putting yourself in that person's service. It was an expression of profound awe and reverence and respect and submission. Jesus says to this temptation, I am commanded in scripture to worship the Lord my God, to flatten myself before God in a posture of utter devotion and yieldedness and availability, and I will. And to serve him only? That's a word that means using all of the gifts and the resources that I have to render some service to someone else as that person's subject or that person's slave. It was a word that was used to describe not only priests serving God in services of worship, but also to describe anyone using their gifts to serve and honor God in any way, such as when Paul refers in Romans chapter 1, verse 9, to serving God with his whole heart by preaching the gospel, just as you guys described. Jesus says to this temptation, I am commanded in Scripture to serve God only, to make the entirety of my earthly life an offering to God alone, utterly relinquishing all that I am and all that I have for his sake and in his service, and I will. This is the defining moment of Jesus' public ministry, and it hasn't even started. Right here, before he ever preaches his first sermon or performs his first miracle, Jesus settles the most important question of his ministry. Will it be about the Father or will it be about me? His entire ministry reflects his faithful answer to that question. What does it mean to be the Son of God? That's what it means. So what is... Well, before I ask that question, think of the way again and again throughout his years of ministry that Jesus puts his duty and his service of the Father ahead of his own needs and his own desires and life going the way that he wants it to. Instead of a life that was about him, requiring God to serve him, meeting his own needs, seeking his own glory, his was a life that was all about the Father. Listen to these verses, just from John's gospel, a collection of verses that show how thoroughly Jesus integrated this perspective, that his entire earthly life was a life of duty and service rather than one of resting in his power 
and exercising his privilege. John chapter 5, verse 19. I tell you the truth, the son does nothing by himself. He only does what he sees his father doing. Chapter 5, verse 30. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Chapter 8, verse 26. He who sent me is reliable, and what I have heard from him, I tell the world. Chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me, for I always do what pleases him. Chapter 8, verse 49. I honor my Father, and I am not seeking glory for myself. Chapter 14, verse 10. The words that I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing this work. And then he prays the night before his death. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. So what does this have to do with us? Well, the very same temptation that Jesus or that Satan puts before Jesus in the wilderness, he puts before each one of us. I think each day. Yes, Jesus was the son of God uniquely. And at the same time, son of God Child of God is a term that is used to describe us as followers of Christ as well. First John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the sons, the children of God. And that, is, in fact, is what we are. Obviously not in the same way that Jesus was. We don't have a divine nature, but we do have the divine spirit residing with us, within us. We have a new identity. We are God's children. How faithful are we to live the life to which God calls us while we walk our days here on earth? How much does our identity shape the life we live? How tempting for us too, as ones chosen by God, loved by God, redeemed by God, seated with Christ in the presence of God in the heavenly realm, how tempting for us too to focus on the power and the privilege that are ours ours as God's children, and to overlook the life of duty and service to which we too are called in these few short years that we are here on earth. The example that Jesus sets us today is not just one of standing strong against the wiles and the temptations of the evil one, important as that is. The, the example that he sets us in this passage is nothing less than deciding once and for all what a life of faithfulness as a son of God, as a child of God, will mean. Is my life on earth about my power and my privilege, or is it about my duty and my service? Is my life ultimately about God or about me? Do those that God places around me in my life, do they see a life consistent with my new identity as a child of God, or do they just see me? Jesus says, it is written, flatten yourself before God in a posture of utter devotion and yieldedness and availability and make the entirety of your life an offering to God alone, utterly relinquishing all that you are and all that you have in his service. What is your response to God's invitation? And the evil one says, nah, just make it about you. What is your response to his temptation?
Pray with me. Our Lord Jesus Christ, it is a joy to be blessed by the example of your life lived out before us. Thank you for the way that you have modeled what a faithful yes to the Father looks like. We pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, you would equip us to say that same sort of yes and to lead the same sort of life of worship and service that lifts up and honors him rather than ourselves. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.